Welcome to my show, Neil. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I would love for you to kick us off with a little about yourself. Sure. Um, well, I um, went back to school in the middle of my life, so to speak, about uh, 10, 15 years ago uh, to go back into psychology. Psychology was always uh, something that was very... Um, very important to me and something that always sort of uh, whispered in my ear. I, for a long time, tried to become an actor and uh, went to acting school for many years. Most of my friends are still actors. Well, a lot of them are. And um, I decided uh, midway through that I was going to take another uh, chance and go back to school like I'd always promised myself to do. And um, I went back to school. And at the time that I did, I was already working full time. So I had to get into an online program because it was the only way that I could do it. And uh, it turned out to be wonderful. And now that we're in, you know, social distancing, people are discovering the beauty of the internet and, um, you know, just how webinars and groupinars and WebEx can be really, really um, uh, successful. And it really was. I had a professor in North Texas. Um, I was in Los Angeles. I had um, um, colleagues in Florida, Pennsylvania, Mississippi, all over the country. And um, I also come from a background where... Um, I grew up with a specific problem that was um, binge eating, and I had a weight problem, a significant weight problem for most of my life uh, up and down. I was close to 300 pounds at my peak, and um, I was um, had an issue with food that was ongoing and fairly consistent, and um, I managed about nine years ago to finally tackle it. Um, and reassemble it, so to speak, you know, realign it all. And I began talking about it a lot, writing about it a lot. I began uh, professing about it a lot, even though I wasn't a professor, I was just a student. And uh, I drew a lot of attention to a lot of people, including, you know, myself and my professors in school. Um, and I started to um, devise a sort of, um, I guess you could say sort of a, a theory combined together with all other, all other um, brilliant minds theories woven together to make a quilt about how I did it, how I maintained it, and how I um, actually overcame it. Because a lot of people will say, when it comes to addiction, or it comes to binge eating, or alcohol, or substance abuse, or gambling, or porn, or whatever it is, that once an addict, always an addict, or it's always a problem. There's some people that come uh, from the disease model, of course, you know, um, that it's an, a permanent affliction. And my belief became that, um, well, in my research, I found out that, and this is one of the research papers that I read, 94% of people who lose a significant amount of weight, I think it was around 30 pounds or more, uh, put it back and then some within six years. So I said, if 94% are putting it back, we have a significant serious problem here. There's something not quite right about our approach, not quite right about our theoretical models, not quite right about what we're doing. We're just missing something. If 6% recover, you know, and only 6%, and I say recover permanently, then we have an issue, all right? We have an issue, and I don't think that's not okay. And that was my passion, that's not okay. It wasn't okay what I was doing to myself. It wasn't okay the way I was living. It wasn't okay uh, what was going on with me, emotionally, psychologically, socially, occupationally. And um, for all of my life, I had wanted to um, find a way to overcome this food beast, I call it. You know, I call it the food beast, that part of me, right? Um, 
my professor in school, just give you a quick background, uh, listened to me talk a lot, and I was training in something called narrative therapy, which is about writing stories about your life, co-authoring your life, and challenging beliefs and interpretations about your life so that you could reconstruct them. And as I was speaking, I once said to my professor, uh, his name was Professor West, I said, Dr. West, I, I love what I'm doing, but I get frustrated because there comes a point where I hit a wall, and I don't know where to go beyond that wall with this specific approach with narrative therapy. I get to a point where I've asked people all the questions I could ask them. I've asked myself all the questions I could ask them. It all makes sense. It all aligns. It's a phenomenal approach, but I get to a point where I'm uh, running on empty. And he said, have you ever heard of something called internal family systems or IFS? And I said, no. And he said it was about um, Dr. Richard Schwartz came up with this philo philosophical framework about splitting yourself into emotional and mental states, parts of self, not multiple personalities. I got to tell all my clients that very carefully. <laughs> Don't worry. We're not going to make a documentary about you. It's not like that. We all have parts of self, right? And one of those parts of self is your, in my case, the food beast or the alcohol beast or the substance abuse beast. And all other parts are um, our MOs, or modus operandi, things that we do to get through life, uh, to manage ourselves, how we come across to others. I should start at the bottom tier of the parts of self, which are the youngest ones, from zero to say around 16, around adolescence, where who carry most of the emotional wounds. Most of our emotions are encoded when we're kids, because that's when our limbic system, our brain is forming. And when ha things happen to us, it gets encoded as trauma. Because even if you drop your ice cream on the sidewalk, right, and your mother doesn't have time to buy you a new one, not a big deal, but that's a big deal to a kid, right? In that moment, the brain takes it in like, like a trauma. Your, your dog runs away for an hour. And even if the, the, uh, the dog comes back an hour later and your parents were calming and said, don't worry, she'll be fine, and she does come back in that hour for a four-year-old, wow, what's encoded in that, you know, you ever watch a five-year-old crying? Yes. Or a seven-year-old having a temper tantrum. Wow, that is like any actor would dream to get to that emotional state, right? And, and, and stay there. So um, that's what I'm saying. <clears throat> we encode emotions in a very powerful way when we're young. And they stay there frozen in time. Parts of self in the young states stay there. Our emotional wounds stay there. And as we grow up, we become adults with adult reactions to childlike emotions. And we don't recognize that that's what's going on. So what happens? Yeah, you have a question. I do have a question. Yeah, yeah. Can this happen, does this happen to everyone in this theory or is it, can parents coach and, and love and support kids? Like do some kids come out different than others or is this a general blanket philosophy? That's a great question. Actually, it does vary greatly because if you did have caring, um, and supportive caretakers, and you did have an environment that nurtured you and validated your feelings as you were having them, then the emotional voltage of what's being recorded will typically go down, but it will never go down to zero because our brains are not designed to have zero emotion, right? And it also depends upon how you're interpreting a situation. Your mom can be very sweet and very caring, but how are you interpreting her support in that moment. What are you telling yourself at five? Because remember, we don't have much of a frame of reference at five, so we can tell ourselves all kinds of things, right? We believe in the boogeyman. We think there is something underneath the bed. I still do sometimes, you know? <laughs> uh, you know, we believe any story we're told. You know, we're egocentric. It's all about us. Everything is personal. So even if you have wonderful parents 
and a nurturing environment, to some degree, you will have emotional wounds. Now, of course, of course, real trauma also happens to people with a capital T. You know, uh, all kinds of hor horrible childhood incidences still happen, and that, of course, remains there as emotional wounds as well. But one, here's the fallacy about mental health, or what I call mental fitness, keeping yourself fit like we go to the gym. You need not have serious traumas or serious abuse or serious uh, conflicts growing up to have emotional trauma or emotional wounds. It doesn't have to work that way. There are many things that could have happened to you. You could have gone to a new school when you were eight and your mother was great, the car, you're gonna make friends, you're wonderful, ended with a high five, everything was great, but you're still, you know? And when you walk into your first class and everybody gives you that look, you know? Five minutes later, they're all your best friends, but that look could still be there frozen in time somewhere. So to answer your question, yes, but everybody does grow up and everybody has emotional wounds. And um, as, as we grow up, the first thing that we do is we try to, we're, we're designed to not feel unpleasant feelings or uncomfortable feelings or painful feelings or moments. So as we have them, we say to ourselves, okay, I'm going to become the popular girl, right? You know, you went to school, you transitioned. Okay, everyone's going to be my friend. I'm going to be popular. I'm going to do sports. I'm going to be uh, the class president. You know, so I never have to experience that moment when I walked in the classroom and making this up, right? And someone looks, they all look at you, you know, that frozen moment. I'm never going to go back there again. We're designed for that. So we develop parts of self, again, Dr. Richard Schwartz's uh, philosophy, to avoid, manage, and divert, and deflect from those uncomfortable moments. So we become the popular one. We become the overachiever. We become the hero. We become the one everyone goes to for advice. Or the opposite, we become the shutdown one, the quiet one, the people pleaser, the caretaker, the, um, the, you know, the one who puts everyone else's needs before their own. Um, I have a quick story on how this works. I knew somebody who was six years old, came home one day, had failed a phonics test, and their father berated them for failing a phonics. How do you fail phonics? You know, he said, you fail math, you fail science, you don't fail phonics. And at six years old, this person just crumbled inside of themselves in that moment when their father was berating them and said to themselves, I guess I'm not smart. I guess I can, I'm, instead of being smart, I'm going to be good. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to clean the dishes for mom. I'm going to take out the dog. I'm going to be a sweetheart. I'm going to, you know, be a people pleaser, take care of others. Lo and behold, that person grew up to take care of others and put their needs, others' needs before their own. Turns out this person was not only smart, they were brilliant, and they ended up publishing novels that did very, very well. So it was a fallacy. But at six, this person decided, I'm not, I guess I'm not smart. From that one emotional moment that we traced it back to, you know, and there could be several moments where that happens. But, you know, that was one memory that she discovered. And as it turns out, yes, one of her biggest, she had depression. And one of her biggest um, 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 reasons for having depression is that over the years, she put everybody else's needs before her own. Hence, all the young ones in her, in her side of herself, all the emotional wounds, every time you don't pay attention to them, every time you don't nurture them, every time you don't let yourself feel when you're having those uncomfortable feelings, you send another message down to the basement where they are kept basically in our mind and say, you know, I don't want to deal with you. Go away. It's like slapping a, slapping a crying kid. Wow. So they get louder, right? It builds and it builds and it builds. So eventually we have to have another part of self that can manage that emotional voltage that's building because we're avoiding it. We're doing everything we can to not go back there. The popular kid, the smart one, the good one. And all of a sudden we're like 40, 50, 55 years old. We're like, ugh. I don't know what it is. 
but all of a sudden I just, I can't go to bed without a drink. Um, or I can't get along with my husband or wife anymore, or my kids don't talk to me, or I'm having so much stress, or I'm feeling anxiety, or I'm just depressed two thirds of the time. We don't know where that came from. And it's because a part of self has come in that has to deal with this building emotional charge in the basement, which um, Dr. Schwartz calls exiles, because you've exiled those emotional wounds down to our basement. So food beast, alcohol beast, gambling beast, porn beast, all these beasts are a, what we call a firefighter, um, a part of self that fights the fire in the system when it has when the emotional voltage is built too high. And it comes in, whispers in your ear and says, I'll take you out. I'll take you out of here. I'll have you escape. Let's go do this. So a craving or an urge for me to go grab the donuts or go to the fridge or whatever it may be is really that food beast whispering in my ear. And the only way that he knows how telling me, I'll take you away from this emotional charge. If I stop the food beast for a moment and say, can you hold for a second? If I could actually talk to him and say, can you hold for a second? I'll honestly always feel something viscerally in my body, a sensation, a burning, a tightening, um, um, some sort of a, you know, a tingling of some sort. And that is a feeling I'm having, you know, a feeling from one of my emotional wounds, one of my younger parts of self. In my case, it's a lot of frustration. I was a frustrated kid, very frustrated. I don't mind disclosing that. Frustration and sadness as well. I thought it was all sadness for a while, but then I realized, oh, wow, was I frustrated. Probably 24-7, everything about my situation I felt burdened by, and I felt frustrated. So, so food felt really, really relieving from frustration. You know, whew, that felt good, only for about 10 minutes, you know, but then I felt shame after. Yeah. So that's what the kids in the basement, the exiles, uh, they're hanging on to that frustration and that sadness then. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. They encapsulate it. Exactly. I actually, I don't know, um, I'm sure a lot of people have, um, I used this with clients recently and they loved it as a metaphor. If you've seen the movie or read the book, Lord of the Flies. Um, yeah. Well, it's in an, I won't do any spoilers, but it's, uh, there's a, 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 an, a, um, an accident. And um, a bunch of kids end up on a deserted island all by themselves, no adult supervision. And over time, they have to build a society amongst themselves. They're all kids who have just experienced a major crash, and there's nobody around except themselves. And they build a society, and at the very end, no, it's not a spoiler, but the very end, when adults finally find them, the adult is us visiting the island. And seeing what kind of chaos has happened down there without us being there, without adult supervision. Because for so many years, we haven't looked at our emotional wounds. We've just let them do their thing down in the basement. Imagine you open up, a, this is why it's hard, the work, because you open up a basement door or knock on the door, knock, knock, I'd like to come in again. They're like, who the hell are you? Mm. Huh? Yeah, we got our own little society down here. Like, who? you left us a long time ago. True, we kicked you out, but you know, we kicked you out because you couldn't handle the situation. We had to come up with stuff ourselves. I had to become the good girl. I had to become the popular girl. I had to become the smart guy. I had to become, you know, you couldn't do it. You know, so you now you're coming back, knocking on the door. So what I tell people is this, uh, to begin the process, don't worry about diving right into your basement. That could be actually overwhelming and flooding and we don't want to do that. We knock on the door, okay, or we land on the island, the first memory that we have that we want to explore or that we think is there is usually the spokesperson, the gatekeeper, 
the one who walks up to the soldiers on the beach in Lord of the Flies or, you know, and, and says, can I help you? You know, take me to your leader type thing. Like, I, you got to talk to me first, you know. So that person usually will be optimal, have an optimal amount of memory for you to start to look at that is not going to overwhelm. That's going to start to segue you into other memories. And once they realize that part of you realizes that you could handle the memory, they say, okay, I do have somebody I'd like you to meet. And you'll go down the staircase and you'll start to take a look. It's all metaphor, right? But I just find that metaphor gives people a real visual on how to unpack all of this so that you can see where your food beast or any beast comes from, right? And so that's essentially, in a very long-winded way, how I <laughs> uncovered, uh, you know, over time, you know, how I, I peeled it together and, and worked on the process. Because what, what the bottom line here is that, you know, I said, uh, there, and there are many research papers. I'm using the 94% as uh, sort of a, you know, a baseline. But there are many, many research papers that you could read. But the meta-analysis that I found, I'm one of the 6%. So if I'm one of the 6%, I must have a voice. I must be able to explain to people what I did differently than the 94 are doing, right? And 6% are doing it. So something is happening. Something is happening that is you know, worth in investigating. Did you do all this work yourself or did you go to like another psychiatrist or something to do this digging and visit with the exiles? And you're going to tell us how to handle the beast and the exiles, I'm hoping. But did you do that work yourself? Can people do it themselves or do they need to get expert help? Well, I would recommend certainly getting people to help you through it. Uh, definitely, you know, see a mental health professional, definitely talk to somebody else who's trained either in this particular type of work, but uh, just work in general, um, you know, mental health um, work. I was training because I was in school. So the work that we were doing was therapeutic in the sense that as we learned the principles, we were actually working through the principles, almost impossible not to. So, uh, but I did have my own therapy as well. So it's all cumulative. It's all cumulative. And there isn't one right way to approach it or one right, right way to do it. And nor am I saying to people, hey, do it this way. Call them your exiles and knock on the basement door and this is how you do it. I'm simply saying this is the, I, the idea is not just recovery. It's not just sobriety. Uh, whether it's sobriety about food or sobriety about porn or sobriety about anything else. It's not just about sobriety. It's not just about recovery. The idea here is that it's about healing. You must heal. You must get to the basement or to the island. It doesn't matter how you do it. It doesn't matter if you use this philosophy or any other philosophy that works for you. But as long as you're getting to the origin, to the, to the underlying origin of the reason this all began, that's how the pendulum is going to stop swinging. Because here's something, in the 6% or any percent, just because a person, in my case, loses a lot of weight and becomes very fit, it doesn't mean that they've healed. Because another part of self is that part of you that becomes ultra-responsible, the overachiever spending six days a week in the gym. Well, not now, but, you know, um, yeah, you know what I'm saying, working out a lot, being very, very vigilant about diet, being almost like self-righteous about diet, the, the person who becomes the fitness guru, who used to be the one who had um, who was obese, for example, is just a, the pendulum swinging. And I also did that pendulum swing, but I recognized that that was happening. I said, "You're just becoming the another part of self 
that covers up the emotional wounds by working out all the time, by eating less, by uh, you know checking checking every inch on the body, by you know overdoing it basically, you know, um, and over focusing and fixating on it. Because as long as I kept moving physically, as long as I kept moving physically and emotionally, I didn't have to look at the wounds as much. And I realized this. I said, what's different now? Because I did lose weight like this before. Why do I always go back? Because I'm not dealing with the root issue. As long as I can skate over the root issue and look good, right, and feel good, because you are healthier, right? right. Society, society is going to give you more attention. It is true. It's going to look and feel better. But I'm still skating over the issue. So eventually I'm going to get onto thin ice because the kids in the basement are still there. And they're still being ignored. Instead of being ignored by food, in my case, they're being ignored by fitness. I'm still not looking at them. I feel like I feel like you explained my relapse, right? Like going two years without a bet and then going back out for a year and then coming back and doing the work in a different way, doing that digging. That's what I'm correlating this to. Okay, I'll stop interrupting because I love listening to you talk. Oh, no, I said, hey, please do. No, if you, please ask questions. I mean, it helps me to, uh, to know where to segue next. I mean, um, so yeah, so that's the idea. The idea is it's about healing, right? And that's what I noticed is the big difference. Now, a lot of programs, a lot of approaches also say the same thing, that it's about healing. But... What happens is that in so many of the approaches that I've witnessed, there's always so much shame involved. There's so much, so much the, the message, the definition that you're a broken person, you're defective, you've got a disease, you've got a disorder, you've got uh, something wrong with you fundamentally, you're cracked, right? You're never gonna fix the crack, you gotta always deal with the crack. Now, your beast is always going to be with you. Now, we're not talking about taking parts of you, by the way, and kicking them out of your existence, right? I have a food beast, but the food beast is like a tamed tiger who, you know, stays in the cage most of the time. I take him out once in a while and I play with him, you know what I'm saying, and I let him go run free, you know what I'm saying, as long as there's no attacks, as long as, you know, the tigers become a kitty, Okay. The tiger has been transformed into a kitty because all parts of self, all parts of you have a purpose and power that you could flip 180. Nothing needs to be gotten rid of. If you have a part of you you don't like, like if you have a part of you that strikes out in anger or a part of you that shuts down and withdraws and stonewalls your friends, if you have a part of you that gets very judgmental, we don't really like that part of you. We don't want to get rid of that part of you. We want that part of you to flip around and, and recognize what purpose it actually has for you. You know what my food beast is great at? It's great at cooking and baking for other people, creating banquets. People absolutely love the food, right? I love to cook. And people say, how do you play with your demons like that? And I say, I'm not playing with my demons. I'm just baking and cooking. And my food beast is on my shoulder as a kitty cat now, not as a tiger, saying, I always wanted you to indulge in something as, as you feel all these things that you're feeling. So as I'm cooking, I'm really, I'm getting the same elated feeling that I used to get when I was eating, right? The same kind of rush that I'm getting when I was feeling. And I'm not avoiding feelings when I'm cooking. Sometimes I'm like, oh my God, I've got to cook this, bake this cake. That's going to take me three hours. So I get frustrated. Remember my frustration? 
And then I get sad. I want to go outside. It's so beautiful. I don't want to sit here and bake. And well, you got people coming over tonight, you know? So I got to be with my sadness, my frustration, my everything while I'm cooking. So, you know, so I, I allow myself to be with my feelings as I'm doing whatever I'm doing. So the kitty cat on my shoulder used to be my beast, right? And right now during quarantine, most of us are in quarantine, um, a lot of things began to happen for a lot of people. You know, a lot of stressors uh, obviously became amplified. And so did my frustration. I can't go out on the weekends. I can't see my friends. I can't travel. Um, so frustration started to, to, to build up. And so did all my exiles that were holding on to frustration. So my food beast for the first couple of weeks um, was actually quite, uh, the, quite the kitty cat, starting to transform a little bit into a cougar, you know, and saying all this food that you had to buy in bulk, it's all right there. And for the first two weeks, I began to see what it was like to have my food be sort of transform a little bit back into a cougar or a tiger as opposed to the kitty cat. You have to stick with the tiger reference with all that's going on with the tiger game. It just fits in. Perfect. I, I was <laughs> thinking of that. I was like, that's perfect, right? Isn't it? Yeah. yeah perfect. That's perfect. I know. I got it. So um, I don't want people to know I'm a very big animal advocate. I have four cats. Love them all, and um, you know, I, I, the tiger in the cage thing is a little bit, is a kind of a metaphor that my, people might have a hard time with. So I, I want to acknowledge that. So you don't have to keep them in a cage. You might have to at the beginning. You might have to at the beginning. You might have to lock your food beast away at the beginning. The first stage of it is to isolate that part of yourself that just doesn't know its place. Right, that is true. Uh, but going forward, you eventually are allowed uh, letting it come out of the cage. So, in other words, but here's the thing. If I was going with the black and white thinking, one would say I had a relapse for two, three weeks after quarantine. because so I wasn't eating junk food, but I was eating my food because I, I tend to eat healthy. I was eating too much of it. And yeah, I mean, it was the same thing. All the memes on Facebook that were saying, you know, you got your pajamas on. That means, you know, until you put your old shorts on, whoa. You know, I put my own shorts on. I was like, oh, okay. You know, but I caught it early. You know, I saw what I was doing and my beast was like, you need help? You need me to do this again? I'm like, you stay a kitty cat. <laughs> a kitty cat, okay? So it never goes away. That is true, but it always stays tamed because no matter what you throw at me, no matter what you throw at me, quarantine, unprecedented, um, you know, uh, shelter in place, whatever you throw at me, losing my job, heaven forbid, whatever you throw at me, I am going to find a way to realign the pattern inside of me so that the food beast never acts like the tiger out of the cage. So how do we how do we do that, Neil? How do we train our tigers to be kitty cats? The first thing is we have to understand that we want to catch it before it gets to the the beast level. Um, we want to know what our mo is. We want to know what what we tend to do in in daily life to try to protect ourselves from feeling things that are too uncomfortable or too unpleasant. So. Um, one of my MOs, let me see if I can think of one of my MOs, would be very organized. I'm very organized. So let's say I have to clean up my desk. I start putting things in order, making things sure my pens are aligned, like exactly. So they look like, you know, I'm doing it right now, just as a little hobby, you know, just to get a feel of how I, how I do it. And that means to me, okay, if I'm doing my MO, whatever my thing is, whatever your thing is, there's a feeling going on underneath. There's something happening, a visceral response going on underneath an exile jumping up and down, however you want to look at it. Or as Dr. Joan Rosenberg says, an ocean wave is coming in onto the shore, right? Either mild 
moderate or tumultuous. And that ocean wave is a visceral response in our body, a feeling that we don't want to have because it's unpleasant. So we do our MO. Now, if you catch yourself doing your MO, what's your thing? Always being right, shutting down, being sarcastic. What's that? Sarcasm is mine. Sarcasm is yours? Okay. All right. One of you, right. I was going to say, we we actually have plenty. We have plenty, right? Uh, Ignoring people, stonewalling, overachieving, overworking, underworking, sleeping too much, sleeping too little, um, you know, being the nice guy in the crowd, being the quiet one, sponging up people first before you say anything, walking right into a room and taking over the room right away, uh, trying to be Mr. Popular, uh, trying to be overly humble. All these things are MOs. What's your MO? What do you do? What do you do, you know, to try to protect yourself from vulnerability or from anything coming up? Now, the thing is, if you can catch yourself doing your MO, you can, that's why parts of self are so effective. Because look at it as not who you are, but a part of who you are in your director's chair. It jumped in to take the lead for a reason. And it jumped in for a reason because there was an uncomfortable feeling or the, or, the, um, or the anticipation of an uncomfortable feeling that it wanted to try to avoid for you. It's protecting you, that MO. If you ask yourself, your MO, can you freeze for a second? Mr. Organize, can you hold the pens? There you go. Can you hold the pens for a moment? And just freeze, take a step back from me for a moment. I, I appreciate you trying to make my pens all neat and tidy that, that nobody's going to see, but <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> that no one's going to care. But could you take a step back for a second? What are you feeling underneath? What's going on? Now I'm feeling perhaps vulnerability because I'm doing an interview. You know, maybe there's a little vulnerability going on here. Maybe there's a little bit of uh, uh, frustration that it's Sunday and tomorrow's Monday. I don't know what it is. There's those feelings underneath, right? So if you can get in touch with those feelings and allow those feelings to sit with you, Dr. Joan Rosenberg, also somebody I highly recommend um, looking up on, on YouTube, her TED Talks and her book, uh, 90 Seconds to a Better Life, are uncomfortable feelings, here's the good news, only last for 90 seconds. They only last for 90 seconds because our neural circuitry sends uh, chemicals, as she explains in her TED Talk brilliantly, into our body viscerally. So we feel that tingling, that burning, that sensation for 90 seconds. The only time it lasts longer is when we're trying to push it down. In other words, when an MO is in charge, okay, or when we make all kinds of ruminative associations. We start thinking about our feeling. We start thinking about our feeling and adding interpretation and belief to it and all kinds of other meanings. And that other time when he said that, and that other time when I said that and he never did that, and that time when he didn't show up, and that time when, oh boy, he's a real jerk. What is he doing in my life? You know, this, and then you end up being frustrated or angry or sad all day or or for longer than the 90 seconds. So either you're adding oxygen to the fire or your MO is covering it up. But if you allow yourself to feel the 90 seconds, and then go about an action alongside the feeling. So let's say you, your MO is to go clean up, to clean a lot when you're, when you're feeling uh, uncomfortable feelings. If you go wash the dishes to try to push the sadness away, then the sadness gets kicked. It's like kicking a kid who's crying. But if you allow the sadness to be with you, guaranteed it doesn't stay longer than 90 seconds, and you go wash the dishes alongside the feeling, then eventually the feeling will dissipate. It will dissipate for three reasons. A, you're not pushing it away. 
B, you're allowing it to be with you for the full 90 seconds. And C, you're having a selective attention on the dishes that you're washing. So your brain will go to the dishes that you're washing, but not as a distraction from the feeling, but alongside the feeling. So you have to practice that then. It sounds you do. Like it is a process. It is a process. And here's the thing. You're absolutely right. Because it's a process, a lot of people don't do it. They want a quick answer. You know, what's the answer to my depression? Come on, doc, tell me. I'm not a doctor, but I'm saying, you know, so they, they, that's what a lot of people coming to therapy will do. And I'm like, you know, I, no, I don't even say I wish there was. I don't even say I wish there was because our brain doesn't work that way. That I can just give you a magic, you know, abracadabra and it's gone. I want people to be able to do this process uh, because this is what gets to the root. This is what gets to the root and this is what puts you in the 6%. Okay. So I, I like, part of my foundation of my show is to be not a, a know-it-all. So I want to continue to engage in different um, strategies. So I love that you're bringing something so new to me, to the table and to my audience. I'm sitting here wondering now, I like your dishes example, but I'm wondering, have I been, if I said, all, I was going to change my whole message to your way of thinking. Have I been communicating wrong to my audience that we should be looking for healthy coping mechanisms? Like instead of just going for the run or calling a friend or, you know, Zumba in and out, have I, am I saying the wrong thing in the context of your philosophy and what you're sharing with us today? Absolutely not. No. Coping mechanisms are strategies <clears throat> to, um, to uh, regulate our emotions. The only thing you want to add to coping mechanisms is, is, am I distracting from a feeling by going for a run or calling a friend or doing Zumba or whatever it is that I do? Am I distracting from the emotion or am I letting the emotion be with me and then calling a friend? You see, am I coping mechanisms in and of themselves, okay, in and of themselves, alone, standing alone, are really just distractions from what you're currently feeling. They will shift you because your brain will have a selective attention and eventually the emotion will go away. But the thing is, if you push the emotion away by distracting, by going for the run, then it's going to come back later on with a vengeance because you've just kicked the emotional burden. You've kicked that part of your emotion in the stomach, basically. It's like Newton's law plus 1%. If you push down, it pushes back with equal and opposite force plus 1%. Eventually, if you build a dam, there's gonna be cracks in the wall eventually. And you're gonna to have to come up with a stronger, stronger pressure to keep the voltage down. So the only difference here in coping mechanisms is that you're not doing the coping me mechanisms to avert, avoid, or deflect from what you're feeling. You're feeling what you're feeling and you're calling your friend anyway. I'm going out for a run, but I'm, so I'm feeling sad. I'm gonna let myself feel sad or vulnerable or helpless or afraid or, or frustrated. And I'm gonna let myself feel this. I'm gonna go for my run, turn on my music and start running. And then when my emotion is done visiting me, it will dissipate. Yes, it will. And it will also thank you for allowing you, right? Allowing, allowing its space with you, to be with you, to be heard. It has to be heard. We have to heal. We have to grieve. We have to grieve what was and what was not in our past. For us, 
our subjective experience of what was and what was not, right? Because we may have a lot of messages from others saying, oh, you didn't have it so bad. You know, that, that's not their business. That's not their business. That's your subjective experience is whatever you experience. Those are your exiles, nobody else's. Those are your emotional burdens, right? So that's, that's important to reiterate as well. So yes, answer, coping mechanisms are important and you're absolutely right and your audience continue to know that they're important, but remember to feel, if you can feel something along with doing it, eventually you'll shift while you're doing it. And that emotion won't have to come back and crack your dam or flood the town by going around the wall because it's gonna find a way. It's gonna find a way to come back. That's the way emotions are. They, we, and the, the fallacy is for so long, when we create parts of self, like our MOs, we really believe for a very long time that we've mastered it. We had a hard childhood, but I'm over that now. That's in the past. No big, I got over it. Get over it, man up. You know, you're fine. That was then, this is now. Yeah, good luck. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm just saying, you know, if you look at somebody's life, there's always something, there's always something that shows up as that's how, that's where it went. That's where the, that's where the geyser blew out the water right there. You know, and you see it. Yeah, I'm fine. I just I can't stop drinking, but I, but I'm okay though. I handled my my fat. What, what what was the last thing you just said? You know, there's it goes somewhere. Now, not not condone, condemning drinking. I'm simply saying, you know, it goes somewhere. It goes somewhere, right? Forever, then you have it forever. It's just calmer. Like the tiger doesn't go away; it just stays a kitty forever. Is that what I just heard? Yeah, because you form it early. You know, there's many, many factors that go into what, what makes, like, for example, why was my thing food and not alcohol? Why was my thing food and not cocaine? Why was my thing food and not porn or something else? There's many, many factors that go into something like a cauldron as to what is going to be your parts of self that develop and or your beasts or beasts, plural, that develop, right? And as it, as it develops, it never goes away entirely. No, there's always something there that is reflective of what purpose that part of you served. Okay, I have another question. Okay. <laughs> and I don't know if this, okay, so there's a lot of, I think they call them co-occurring addictions or co-occurring disorders, whatever they say. So not only am I a gambling addict, potentially I could be an alcoholic or a foodaholic or whatever, like multiple beasts is where I'm going with this is, I guess, can you do any elaborating on having multiple beasts and how, if, if we start, oh, I just had a light bulb moment. Cause I feel like, I, I feel like one of the biggest differences between my first time gambling and this time is that I have done some healing. I've done some of the digging, visiting, hanging out in the basement, even though I don't like kids, you know, like I feel like I've spent time there. I feel like I still, have to, you know, like putting myself into this, this framework that you're talking. And I feel like that's part of why I haven't had a drink now in I think like four and a half months. And I feel like that faded away because I did my work on the gambling. So I did some of that healing. Yeah. So it made drinking not as important. And I just associated it with as a coping mechanism, like, okay, if I can't gamble, then I'm going to go to the bar and drink you know, if I have a bad day or whatever those feelings are, I go to the next thing. Yeah. So luckily I haven't, I don't think I found a 
new big deal one um, to trade off the drinking because I, you know, because I haven't been drinking. But can you can you tell me how multiple beasts fits into what you're talking about? Absolutely, and that's brilliant that you that you brought it up that way because that's something that I call the. Um, we actually did um, <clears throat> an episode on our podcast called the Pendulum Effect which is, uh, describes that exactly. So when somebody says, for example, they're trying to stop drinking and they have stopped drinking, but now they smoke a little bit more, you know, or now they eat a little bit more. They put on 25 pounds or 30 pounds, but, you know, I'd rather do that than go back to the drinking. I get that. I get that, right? But at the same time, that's an example of what I'm talking about is that if the healing is not done or not done fully, the emotional voltage is going to have to go somewhere. So it goes to some other expression of... Uh, something that keeps it down. Now, multiples at the same time? Well, sure, if there's a lot, I mean, there's so many factors that go into something like that in terms of how much uh, emotional wound there is. Could food do it all? In my case, no, because I also suffered from depression. I also was depressed for many years and um, had what they call dysthymia, which is sort of a, a more milder form of depression that's high functioning. You can go to work, you can get out of bed, but there's always a sort of a backdrop of, of, of melancholy and um, a few things that resemble depression. But when I was a teenager and adolescent, I don't mind disclosing for at least a year, I had some very severe, not hospitalization, but some very severe depression going on. And I was out of control with food. So there were, there were two high, uh, you know, comorbid things going on at the same time. Um, and you know, if, if one can't satisfy or one can't take you away entirely, from the situation, others will come in. There are different forms of beasts. There are the escape artists, which are the food, the alcohol, you know, take you away. There's the blankets that I call. Blankets are things that throw things over the feelings, like depression. I'll take a big still wool blanket, I'll toss it over your feelings. So, you know, you don't have to you know, numb you out, you know, destroy everything, but I'm also destroying all your pleasure, all your motivation, all your energy right all your lust for life gone but i'm also keeping all the unpleasant stuff down right you know um yeah thanks very much buddy but that's only partly helpful i suppose and then there's anxiety same thing a blanket people say i ruminate a lot I overthink a lot and overthinking rumination which we all sometimes do is another part of self that is for that is designed to distract you from the here and now no epiphany i tell people and this is true of me too because i ruminate Myself is one of my things too. No epiphany ever came from rumination. No epiphany ever came from overthinking. If you're pensive on a certain topic, that's not the same thing as overthinking. You know, there's a problem. How do I find a solution? I'm looking at the solution. I'm, you know, dissecting it. That's not overthinking. That's looking at a problem and finding a solution. But overthinking is making associations in a catastrophic way. That, you know, the worst case scenario, what if this happens and then this and then this, like, where are you going with this? Your brain is, is taking you away from the here and now, again, taking you away from uncomfortable feelings. So there's the blankets, there's the escape artists, and then there's the replacers. I call the replacements. People who self-harm, people who cut themselves, are trying to get a physical pain, a physical sensation or a release rather than feeling emotional pain, for example. So there's things that replace the emotional pain, there's things that blanket the emotional pain, and there's things that have you escape or take you away from the emotional pain. Sometimes we do all three. I was gonna say there's combinations because oh, oh yeah. <laughs> it seems like there's a lot of um, 
depression in the addiction environment for sure. I was sitting here thinking about bipolar as you talk. So I'm from the school of, and this is just because it's where I was most intrigued by the research, but I'm a big fan of Dr. Amen. And he talks about, you know, what are we internalizing, like food, sunlight, healthy things, and how there's a lot of misdiagnosis of ADD and, and bipolar and all that stuff because we're putting the bad stuff in almost, not that all of them are made that way. And I'm not speaking very good. I should have said, you know, I'm not Dr. Raymond. Um, this is some of my takeaways from it. And I'm sitting here thinking when you put a blanket on it, in my mind, I had thought of it as simple as, well, come on, you depressed people, eat a good diet, you know, do what Dr. Eamon says. Like it was that simplified. Like you and I talked about black and white and I'm very black and white. But when you, when you called it a blanket and that depression, it really hit something for me for all the people that I know that are depressed. Like that has to be, how do you get out from under the blanket? You know what I mean? Like the, the ends are so far apart. And I'm just trying to wrap my head around where in the world would they start to find their way out? Because there is no, you use the word, I think, lust for life, which is what caught my attention was like, yeah, even when I was in my active addiction, I still went to college. I still went to work. I did. I still was able to accomplish things and motivate, which makes me think I've never been clinically depressed. And again, I'm not a, I'm not a professional on this stuff. I'm just trying to learn and help and pass along the right things. So I don't know if you can answer that and it might be different for other people. And I'm sorry, I'm on a runaway train right here, but you get my juices going with all this stuff. So the oh. depression and the blankets, I just can't get there on how you'd solve those. Yeah. Well, no, right. Um, but you know, depression, um, is just like any other part of self. So for example, I might say to somebody, um, so where is your depression today? on a scale from zero to 10, where would you quantify it today? And they'll say, okay, it's about an eight. I'm like, all right, so where was it yesterday? Also an eight, okay. When was it not an eight? Um, about a week ago, it was about a nine. Okay, so something had to go from a nine to an eight. So what that does is that gives a person a sense of, um, of understanding, a sense of advocacy, like agency control, right? That their depression, that part of them that is depressed, Right? Rather than saying that you're depressed or that you have depression, a part of you is depressed. A part of you has depression. Right, And that part of you went from a nine to an eight. Do you think that's random? Most people start off saying probably yeah. Say, okay, try this on for size. Probably no. <laughs> probably a pattern. Okay, There is a recurring internal pattern that is happening that's having your depression go from a nine to an eight and then back up to a nine again or down to a six on some days. Right, rather than saying you're diseased with major depressive disorder, right, leave that to the professionals to diagnose. Rather than saying you're diseased, say what is what had it go from a nine down to a six? That's a 30% drop. That's huge, right? What is different? Now, oftentimes, what is different is again, just like with your MOs, this is a, depression is like a massive MO. It's a hyper vigilant, it's a it's a, it's a heavy artillery MO, right? And it will float in and out based on whether or not you are aware of what's going on underneath it. If it feels you don't need it, then it will float away. 
it will go down to a six. If it feels that it's not necessary for it to be there, it will go down to a six. If it feels it is necessary to be there, it will float up to a nine. Now I'm simplifying it a lot just to give people a quick view that it has a pattern, that it's not random, that it doesn't just float in whenever it wants. And I even say this, imagine your depression is, has their suitcase packed and is willing and wanting to float out like Mary Poppins as soon as you're, as soon as you're ready to have her leave. She's like, let me go. I'm on a vacation as badly as you'd like her to float away. So what is at the root? What is at the source? What's underneath the depression? Usually if people start to get in touch again with the uncomfortable, painful feelings underneath that had the depression come to begin with, which is tough to do because for many years we've designed our life to stay safe. If we grew up in an environment where speaking your mind got you in trouble, you learn not to speak your mind. If putting your needs first was not validated, you learn that it wasn't important. Keep your mouth shut, you know, uh, and just get through this. Skate, right? Find a way to, to get through this. And you did. And fortunately, you took that MO with you into your adult life. And now when you want to express your feelings, there's a party that goes, no, 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 no. No, let's just let's continue to be strategic. It worked before, it'll work now. And we don't even sometimes recognize that we're doing that. So when it comes time to go back to, um, I say it this way, as adults, we have all the frame of reference in the world, but not, a, not really access to our, our feelings. As kids, we had all the feelings in the world, but no frame of reference. So we have to sort of meet the two together. They sort of have to you know, come together in, in the middle somewhere. Wow, my mind's like blown. <laughs> what part of your mind, Bobby? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, one of these parts of myself. Yeah. I feel like, I don't wanna say it gives me almost an excuse, because I, I think that I mentioned to, this to you before, was, was I correlated the beast with the way we say it in our groups, that the addiction, the voice is talking, it's doing push-ups. And I think that's why I've struggled with um, not quitting smoking as quickly as I wanted to was because all these different coaches and different people in my life, oh, well, if you only smoked four today, that's not as bad as the 10 is yesterday. And I was almost being rewarded for bad behavior. And I didn't like that. Like, again, my black and white thinking. So as, I, as you're explaining this to me, I am really making a point here, I swear. <laughs> it's, I think it's easier to forgive yourself if you understand yourself and not, like, it's okay. Maybe one of my MOs is these standards that I have, even to myself. I probably have my own MOs for myself, I'm guessing, based on what you said. But breaking this up as different pieces and going back to not defining myself by because I smoke cigarettes, you know, um, that that's one piece of me is smoking. And then teaching myself, and I'm not trying to turn this into like my own psychology session, but <laughs> trying to figure out, I don't, I have a really hard time identifying my feelings. Mm. You know, like you, you were very clear about making that distinction between frustration and sad. Yeah. And 
I can't put my finger on all my different feelings and even how I'm feeling them. I'm going to try to turn up the volume to hear that and, and see if I can physically tell. Like the big ones I can tell, but the little nuances I'm not good at understanding. Is there, would you have any tricks on how to teach us what those feelings might look like so that I don't end up playing with the beast? Or my audience doesn't end up playing with the beast? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it starts with that's why we talked about the spokesperson before, the kid on the island or the kid at the top of the stairs in the basement that sort of uh, like, you know, leads you down. Because you, you do want to start with the memories that come to you first. Uh, you do want to you start with the emotions that are a little bit more uh, obvious. Because once you accept, that let's just say something happened when you were a kid, something you wanted and desired didn't happen. You were disappointed. And you get in touch with that feeling, whether it's sadness or anger or um, loss or vulnerability. Say dad left when you were eight and you remember that moment when he was getting into the car. You know, acknowledging not only the feeling, but your right to have that feeling. That's what opens up the rest of the basement the flashlights go on and some of the other exiles open up basement lights when you acknowledge it's okay to have felt that way it's okay it's valid it's always valid my worst I, the phrase I hate the most is when someone says you shouldn't feel that way mm. I get frustrated Hello. I get frustrated. <laughs> Even as a mental health professional, I get frustrated when someone says you shouldn't feel that way. I have to tell my exile down boy when someone says that. I say feelings are feelings are feelings. Now you could say to somebody, what if you looked at it in a different way? What if you thought of it in a different way? If I reframed the scenario, would a different feeling become elicited? Would a different feeling get evoked? In other words, would a different exile get poked at? Possibly, right? That's when people are arguing and couples are fighting. I work with couples a lot. If they say, well, what if you looked at it this way? Or Brene Brown, the famous psychologist will say, right? You love her? I know. She'll say to her husband, right? She'll say, what story are you telling yourself right now when he's upset with her? What story are you telling yourself? So whatever he's telling himself is going to elicit a certain feeling. She's not telling him you shouldn't feel that way. She's saying, what story are you telling yourself right now? Are you seeing this the way you know, in, in a certain way that is, is uh, automatic to you. And there might be a way to reframe what you're thinking. But for a kid, when you go back in time to your younger emotional wounds, they're not telling themselves, they're telling themselves stories too, but we have to validate those stories because those are stories that they were experiencing. They wanted something, needed something, deserved something, or didn't deserve something that was going on for them right then and there. Okay, now as adults, we have the frame of reference that I talked about earlier. Now we could say, what if you looked at, maybe dad was having a bad day that he yelled at you. Okay, you could tell that to a 26-year-old, not to a six-year-old. The six-year-old is scared because dad threw over the kitchen table or whatever he did. Okay, yeah, he was having a bad day and it wasn't personal. You know that at 26, you don't know that at six. So your feelings are valid at that stage. The exiles, the ones who are carrying the burden, that's what opens up the dimensions of the more nuances that you were asking about, the smaller feelings. It's okay that you felt that way. It's valid. Those feelings are real. Mm -hmm. And once you give yourself permission, 
to feel the way that you felt, the shame part of you, because we all have a shamer, stops shaming us for feeling that way. What happens when you shame a kid? I don't know. I'm not a parent. Oh. <laughs> When you shame it, when you were shamed, right, it hurts, right? It 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 creates even more of whatever they were going through. They just they they, it, they internalize that shame that there's something wrong fundamentally with them, and there isn't, right? So if we say you shouldn't feel that way to ourselves, we say it's not. You know, you had a lot of anger growing up, dude. What was your problem? You know, when you were eight or ten or twelve. When we do things like that. You know, we invalidate our own feelings or someone else invalidates our feelings. It just makes them worse. And that's the same thing when you have a craving for something that you're trying to stop, your beast, and you blame, you shame yourself for having, you know, um, a, a slight slip up or something like that. It, it, the shame, when you shame yourself, it goes right past the beast. The beast couldn't care less. Remember, it's a part of self that has a limited skill set, right? Like an orchestra. It's the trombone player or the gong. The beast is the gong player. You know, you ever go to an orchestra? Who plays the gong? Who, who gongs? You know, you know, there's a guy standing there. Usually when you watch a symphony orchestra, there's a guy, there's a gong. I never hear him, you know, but he's always standing there when, in, a, in, a, in a major symphony. All the other players are playing at some point or other. Percussion, symphony, you know, uh, trombone, trumpet. Uh, they're all playing their parts. So when, a shame, when we shame ourselves, we try to, we're trying to shame the beast. Don't do that. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't eat, don't overeat, right? But it, the, the beast doesn't give a damn. It goes right past the beast's um, you know, consciousness right down to the basement. And who gets shamed when we shame ourselves? The most vulnerable among us. The ones who are holding all the emotional burdens. So they get louder. And if they get louder, the beast has more ammunition. The beast has more fuel, right? You gotta watch shame. Self-shame, you've got to watch how you criticize yourself. Even if you did have an extra slice of pizza when you told yourself two only, okay. Thank you for pointing out that I had three instead of two, you tell your shamer, I got that, I was there, okay, all right. It doesn't mean it's okay, it just means that, okay, something, I was feeling something and I let, I let that feeling, you know, that my escape artist, my food beast, take the director's chair, I got that. So let's find out what I was feeling in that moment. What was I feeling in that moment? Was it frustration, helplessness? What was going on, right? If you shame yourself, the beast doesn't give a damn. The beast just wants to eat. The beast just wants to, you know, even when they're a kitty cat, okay, now they're tamed, but still, they're still, they're still a kitty cat. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, they're not the CEO. I mean, that, actually, the cats think they do run the place, but, you know. <laughs> Yeah. You did just solve another thing at me because I get mad at myself for being mad at myself. Mm -hmm. If that makes any sense, right? So if I ate that third piece of pizza, I'd be mad. But then I also am mindful enough to know I don't want to be mad at myself because then it might be a trigger for something else or whatever. I didn't understand it in the context of you just explaining it until now. Right. But if something's bothering at but I've never thought I understood shame or felt shame on so many levels that probably my audience did because I, I've just been exposed to a lot of people that talk about it and I didn't realize that I feel it, but I feel it when it comes to my vices and my, I don't want to say perfectionism cause I don't shoot to be perfect, but my standards mm -hmm. and I, I wouldn't have made that connection either till now. So I guess I have felt shame. So you just identified an exile for me, I guess. And now I, I could recognize it and go through it 
and then to your point let myself be mad on the first time but don't get mad at being mad right right because you know um in in the case of myself when um if i was to overeat or gain weight the shame involved with my story is all of the negative uh, validation or invalidations that I heard growing up about it. So all that, all that emotional energy will start to come back to me. All those memories will start to come back to me. All that sadness, all that frustration, all that vulnerability, all that fear, fear of rejection, fear of not being loved, um, you know, fear of uh, my health or whatever else other people would say. All those things start to come back to me. And those emotions are valid. They're, they're mine, right? They're there, but they're not defect. They don't make me defective because shame will say, see, there's something wrong with you after all. They were right. That's a totally different story. The story is I felt sad. I felt sad that people were saying that to me. I felt sad that it, you know, everybody else was pointing out my weight as opposed to their problems. I, I was sad that um, that's the only way that I was able to feel good growing up. I was sad that I wasn't getting what I needed. I wasn't being heard. I was frustrated, like I said, 24 seven, and very, very sad and very, very disappointed a lot of the time. And honestly, I'm taking a risk because I don't care who's hearing this, you know? Yeah. People who were there might be listening. You know what? That's the case. That's the case. That might evoke their exiles. Good, start working on it because that, <laughs> that was the case, right? And Shame, if I start, if I overate now, shame would do to me exactly what it did to you. I'd be mad that I did it, then I'd be mad at myself for being mad, and then I'd catch myself saying, you're shaming you, you're shaming yourself, as opposed to being compassionate with yourself, having empathy for what all that is connected to, all the sadness that it's connected to, all the helplessness that it's connected to, all the negative invalidations from peers, you know what I mean? They don't treat people who are chubby very well. Sometimes. No. You know what I mean? They really don't. And, and, and on all kinds, it's not just that. And I'm not condoning that. I'm simply saying, I know, right? I went through it. And, um, you know, it, it could be a lot of things. It could be you're too tall, too short, wearing glasses, you know. Uh, you know, you don't fit into the environment that you're in. You know, but a lot of bullying, you know, as well. So is there anything that parents or people can do to teach their little ones, you know, as, as they're forming the memories and stuff, is there anything proactively if they teach them how to feel their feels like maybe, so there's a 15 year old in my life who has the anxiety, for example, and she's just starting to really talk a little better for example, and, and stuff like, is there a way to help her while she's still developmental to learn how to handle the exiles before the beast grows too big? Like, yeah. is there a way to teach that early on or is it, it just is what it is and we address it once we identify it, once we're all grown up? It's a great, it's a great question because it really, it's, it's really um, universal. Um, you know, at either 15 or even younger, if you can validate whatever your child or a child is feeling, if you can tell them it's okay to feel, that it's okay to be with those feelings, that um, rather than telling them that they ought not to feel that way, right? Um, 
if you can nurture that moment for them and let them know that everything that's happening around them is not their fault, right? And I'm not saying they're not responsible for their actions if, they're, if they did something you, know, that you want to correct. They're not, anything that, that is disappointing to them, instead of rationalizing, to, rationalizing it to a kid, saying, well, I had to because I have to go to work, I have to work two jobs because your father left. That's not what a six-year-old needs to hear. Say, I know this is hard. I know that you're disappointed. You know, I know it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be angry with me every time I walk out the door. You know, it's okay. You know, and processing their feelings, letting them know that they are valid and that they are not responsible for things they cannot control as kids. The greatest thing that you could tell a kid who has been emotionally or physically abused is that it's not his fault. It's absolutely not his fault. Well, I was a bad kid. Like, you do not deserve whatever came at you. If you're a bad kid, how would a parent who's not abusive dealt with that, right? Right. You're a bad kid, what, what did you do, right? I had a son or daughter, they're not gonna get abused. If they're doing something badly, we sit down and say, what, what was going on? What was, what was going on? Like, what were you feeling? You know, and, you know, put boundaries around that. So making sure that you let your, your kids have their feelings, validate their feelings. But here's the thing, in order to do that, you gotta validate your own. So a lot of the times, you know, you, you, when you have connection to your own uh, exiles, your own um, uh, emotional wounds, you give, you create a space for other people to do the same thing, right? So you gotta work on yourself too so that you're able to say that. Because if you can't validate your own feelings, it's hard for you to validate those of your children. Because what you might be telling yourself is, well, nobody was there for me, I had to rough it out, so you do the same thing. You know, so big deal, I work two jobs. Come home, make yourself dinner, and stop complaining. You have to take care of your younger siblings. That's great, but that's not validating. Like, I understand this is difficult. I appreciate everything that you do. I know this is difficult. You're allowed to be disappointed at the same time as responsible. So if you're allowed to be disappointed at the same time as responsible, you're allowed to be sad at the same time as productive. You're allowed to be angry at me at the same time as doing what I ask you to do. Okay, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Okay, um, you alluded to your podcast. Do you wanna share a little about that before we go? Sure. Um, myself and a colleague and friend of mine named Robert Aceves do a, um, a, a podcast every Tuesday at 6 p.m. called Mind Fit, two words, Mind Fit. And um, he comes from a more Eastern philosophy. He's a Zen Buddhist. He's, he's met the Dalai Lama. You know, he's been to India and um, comes from a very Eastern way of, um, of looking at uh, solutions and looking at, at uh, emotional health. And I'm a little bit more Western, postmodern, but Western. But I also, we, all, we weave it together very well, sort of a yin and a yang. And we discuss uh, issues that are very um, universal and, um, and subjective to a lot of people. The last couple of episodes, we've been focusing on the quarantine and uh, how to cope throughout the quarantine. We talk about toxic relationships, setting boundaries, um, you know, um, the pendulum effect. I mentioned earlier, it's one of the episodes as well. So we're available on Anchor, on Spotify, there's seven different platforms. Um, actually, people from all over the world have been chiming in. I looked at the list, I'm like, people in 
Saudi Arabia and, and uh, New Zealand and the Philippines. So it's growing pretty quickly. So um, we, we launched Tuesdays at 6 p.m. And um, there's about 10 or 12 episodes that are on the, on the platform right now that you could listen to. And we're still recording. Of course, we're recording from home. <laughs> you know, <laughs> where else? And um, yeah, and it's it's been a really great endeavor. We've been getting a lot of of, uh, of hits. So it's uh, if you want to hear more about stuff like this, and uh, all, with an Eastern you know Zen added to it, then uh, check out MindFit. And um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd rather send them directly to you so that they get it the nice clean way that you deliver the message. I, I love how you simplify everything, even though it's kind of complicated stuff by your analogy. So I know I'll be listening more. I love your show. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's, that's the, one of my goals is actually to, to make it uh, in a way that people can really grasp it. They can visualize it. That's why I use metaphor a lot uh, to explain, you know, things like Lord of the Flies and the basement and, and things that people can visualize and understand because it is a lot and I want people to have the courage and the tenacity to do the work, you know, so that they can really get to the point where uh, they, they can actually heal and be part of that 6%, you know, because um, it's still, it was a, you know, it's just still to this day, we've gone so many decades, um, I don't know, being okay with a 94%, you know, relapsing or going back into old, at least with food, so um, same thing with depression, it's on the increase, on the rise. I understand now, situationally, what's going on with people. This is an unprecedented time. But even depression, anxiety, it's just on the increase. We're not focusing on, in my opinion, getting to the root of the issue. We're trying to find quick solutions. And a lot of the times I will get asked the question by clients, so what do I do? So what do I do? And I say, I understand that you really want to get into it. You want to get down there and start working on this, but it is a process. And remember, your brain formed over all these years. It's got a you, you've constructed a life and a story inside yourself. You've got to deconstruct it, and it's it's like surgery, very laser surgery. We can't just go in there with a you know with a pitchfork. <laughs> you know, you know, you don't want to dive in the pool. You want to get your feet wet first. That's what I always tell people. You know, because. It's years in the making, right? Your, your life story is years in the making. Let's give it the time it deserves to unpeel it so that we can appropriately find out what's going on with you. That would be me too if I were watching your office. Okay, let's get this show on the road. <laughs> Fix me. Fix me now. <laughs> right. Do you have a worksheet I can work on? I'm like, sure. You know, I, I, said, I do send worksheets, but at the same time, yeah, that's exactly right. People want to know. How could I do this and how could I do this now? I guess that's the generation too that we're living in, you know, but. Um, well, to your, to your point about it taking that long to, to get to the point it is, we also have been dealing with it that long. So we want it over. So I could see, you know, people wanting the instant gratification. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause that's, you're exactly right. Cause that's the thing is that people often wait before getting into therapy. Here's the thing I could also reiterate, which is also what MindFit is about. MindFit is about mental fitness as opposed to mental health, mental fitness, just like going to the gym when the gyms were open, we take care of our bodies, right? We take care of our uh, diet or exercise, you know, uh, we take care of our homes. We should also take care of our mind, also take care of our emotions in much the same way. So we don't have to wait to a point where the beast has taken over, 
right? But very often what happens in therapy, in therapeutic um, environments is that people do wait until it, it comes to a point where they just can't manage this anymore. So they reach out for help. So you're absolutely right about that. They've reached the critical point, the tipping point, and they're like, oh, please help, you know? And you don't have to wait till that point. You could start talking about your history, your background, your emotions, you know, your relationships. You don't have to come in with a major presenting issue. I see a lot of people on my platform, my clients, who don't come in with something that's already gone over the top. They're recognizing more and more, come in sooner. You know what I mean? Start talking about it sooner. Don't wait until there's a crisis that, you know, needs to be managed almost immediately. You know, that's excellent. That's very promising. That means that everybody that's putting the effort into awareness and education and stuff is probably getting and reaching to some of these people. You know, we didn't yeah. talk about like, this is mental illness month, right? Most people didn't talk about that. X amount of years ago or thought that it was okay to go to therapy or do that digging. Yes. That shame monster guy came out, I think. That's right. That's right. The shame monster is associated with stigma as well. You know, a lot of people say they, my parents don't believe in therapy or, you know, I don't really know if therapy works and there's a big stigma about mental illness and mental health and only XYZ people go to therapy. And that's uh, why we want to shift the conversation that it's about mental fitness. You know, most people have to get some exercise, right? Physical exercise. Why are we you know, avoiding the brain? Why are we avoiding the emotions? You know, because that has more to do with our quality of life than almost anything else. So, um, yeah, so we're also, you know, removing the stigma, you know, uh, chipping away at that stigma, making people realize you don't have to be, you don't have to have a major affliction of any kind or be in a crisis or not. It's not even, a, it's not a question of weakness or I can't manage my own, my own problems. You've been managing your own problems all your life, right? Through your MOs. You've right. been managing it very well. Congratulations. And tell all of your MOs they've done a fantastic job. But have you been managing your kids in the basement? Have you been managing the kids on the island? You know, have you been managing those? That's what I want to know. I know you manage yourself very well. Most people are, do a really great job of that. You know, got themselves together. I don't want you to have yourselves together. I want you to have yourselves healed, right? I want to have yourself um, integrated, okay? not just together. Together is an MO. I got it together. Terrific. <laughs> what about your kids in the basement? Have they got it together? <laughs> People can see your face right now. You're like, right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, take a still, still photograph and put it on there. Yeah. That was great. Like I said, I love your passion. I'm so grateful to you. Um, I will admit to my audience that I blew it with the technology and I got a nice healthy three hours of you. So I've learned tons between last week and this week. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm not ashamed. <laughs> that I no, don't, we don't shame ourselves. No, 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 no. Even if we were frustrated, even if we were whatever, disappointed, right? We just, we were with it for 90 seconds and here we are again. So no problem. Yeah, it's been amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe that was good because you had three hours of uh, you did have a three hour back you know background from what we talked about. So maybe that turned out to be good. Yeah, it definitely was a big help. So yeah. thank you so much. Did I forget anything? Is there any last thoughts before we? 
I don't think so. Just be kind to yourself in this time, you know, be kind to yourself and to others, you know, don't, don't do things from the point of view of I should do them because I'm quarantined, do them because I, because you could do them, right? Don't uh, go through that bullet list saying, you know, I really should get this done because I got the time to do it. But tell people right now, we got all the time in the world, but our plates are full. You know, there's a lot of added stress and your exiles are jumping up and down right now because so many other healthy distractions that we used to employ are not available to us anymore. So if we don't want to go back to vices, you know what I mean? We're, we have depression, anxiety that's starting to kick in now because all these emotions are coming up and people have nowhere, to, no outlets anymore and not as many outlets as they did before. So just be kind to yourself, right? It's okay. There was a, a commercial that came on last night. I think it was on AMC. I'm not sure. It said it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. Yeah, that's a good way to sum this up in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's okay to not be okay. I think I would be nicer if I lived in Southern California than upstate New York. I will say that. I, I would like the sunshine and warm degrees instead of being okay or not okay here in cold New York because we've had one good day the next two weeks 60 is supposed to be the high it's May there's something wrong with that <laughs> um, yeah because I, I almost hate to tell you right now I'm looking outside it's sunny and beautiful I'm like wow <laughs> yeah I might just go for a run you know well there you go yeah as long as I'm with my feelings while I go right yes exactly right right not thank as you as again Neil you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for all you do. Thanks. Wow, right? Like, how amazing is Neil? I, I love, first of all, that he was a good enough sport to record. We, we spent a total of about four hours together. The first week was just as amazing as what you just heard, but I had changed my Zoom account and screwed up and never hit record. And you missed a lot of, we, we covered a lot of it, but you missed some of what I got. He had done a lot more of the low level with me on the first time. So he didn't even like tell you guys he lives in California or any of that fun stuff. He just showed up to really serve you guys and try to share his knowledge and experience. And I appreciate him so much for that. They talk about a lot of topics that I'm pretty passionate about on their podcast, MindFit, if you didn't catch it. They uh, kicked off, I think, maybe in January, and it's a good listen, and it's an easy listen, and there's two of them, so it, it's pretty cool. I, I just wanted to give them a shout out for that, and then... You know, food for thought. I, I think I will have to listen to this episode a couple more times just because there's so many good nuggets in there. And I I wanted to call out this, you know, I'm not a psychology major or anything, but I find it very interesting that both Neil and Odile, if you remember Odile from, gosh, one of the earlier episodes, they correlate stuff back to our childhoods and that trauma and I think before I started opening my mind to some of this, I would have been like, oh, you know, all your 
I, I could picture being like a sarcastic shithead about it, like, oh, childhood issues, blah, blah, blah. So I really liked how he explained that it doesn't have to be the worst trauma or it could be the worst trauma. Like, it, it still happens to all of us having those kids in the basement. So I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And next week, well, I don't want to ruin surprises because I keep meeting all these interesting people that are willing to share their time with us. And you just never know what's going to happen for next week. So I'll be talking to you for Coping While Cooped because I still don't know when I'm going back to work in an office. So you've stuck with me for a while. All right, beautiful people. Thanks for tuning in. Strong.